was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Broadway musical director David Loud. David Loud appeared in the original Broadway cast of Merrily We Roll Along and Masterclass, and he served as musical director on The Visit, Company, She Loves Me, Steel Pier, Ragtime, A Class Act, The Boys from Syracuse, Curtains, Sondheim on Sondheim, and more, as well as conceiving the Burt Bacharach review, The Look of Love. He is the author of the new memoir, Facing the Music, and you can come to 92nd Street Y this Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, tickets are at the link in the episode description, to see the Lyrics and Lyricist concert celebrating his book and his career. So now, without further ado, the great David Loud. So... I would love to start by asking you, you talk about this briefly at the end of the book, but what inspired you to write it? Well, it started out as a graduation speech that I was giving to the North Country School, a graduating class of ninth graders. Uh, North Country School was this organic farm that I grew up at um, and felt the need to escape from to pursue my life on Broadway. But they asked me back to give a commencement address. I think they wanted 15 minutes. And I, I talked for about 40 and I did two songs. Um, and um, a woman came up to me and said, I think this should be a book. And I thought that was very nice. And I went on to the next person who wanted to talk to me. But this woman uh, attacked my husband and said, I don't think David's taking me very seriously. And you should know that I'm actually a successful publisher in New York City. And, I would like to, to talk with him about making this into a book. And she had been touched, I think, by how open I was in the speech about challenges I was facing and, uh, and also the mystery of how someone who goes to a school like that and plucks chickens and milks cows and um, mucks out horse stalls ends up conducting Broadway musicals. It's a mystery to me too. I mean, that, the passion that you get for the theater, at least in my case, was so powerful. I've never looked back. I, I've wanted the same thing since I was 60 years old. And I made it happen, you know? And what was the process like of going back into your life to write this book? Well, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was, it was thrilling and funny and I ended up remembering stories I hadn't thought about in years, and I never quite knew when I sat down at the table what was going to come out. And I would sit down to write about something, and I, something completely other would appear. I was, and I was very luxurious about it. I took my time writing it. I, I I've written many versions of this book now. I wrote a very, very long, very, very boring version of it, and I cut and cut and cut and tried to figure out what exactly this memoir needed to be about. 
and then uh, a wonderful editor read it and liked it very much and gave me hundreds of notes and it took me a long time to take them all and I handed it back to her expecting an A plus 100 and she handed it back to me with 500 more questions. At that point, I threw it on the floor and said, I never want to see, you, see it again. This is about a year and a half ago in the pandemic and three months went by and I didn't even look at the book. And then I picked it up again and her questions were so smart that I, I kind of started from the beginning and came up with this version of it. Yes. Basically, she wanted to know how I felt about everything that happened in the book. And that is what is, I think what, it, what makes this final version, I feel more successful, more, um, more, I, I don't like care for this word, but relatable. <laughs> yeah. And so what made you decide to end the book at the visit? Of course, you've done more shows since then, but. Well, I haven't done more shows since then, actually. That's on a, on a Broadway schedule. I, I do con conduct the musicals at Manhattan School of Music now, stuff like that. But uh, doing eight shows a week is a physical feat that I am not up for anymore with my Parkinson's and other health challenges. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a great treat and an unexpected treat to have at, at the end of my 34 years on Broadway. And what kind of sort of closure did you have from that experience, or? <laughs> I don't think life really dispenses closure. Um, it was a feeling that I, I tried to capture at the end of the book in that ridiculous scene in the men's room at, at the Tony Awards, where there's this, there's such a disconnect between the work that musical directors do and musicians do and and the respect that they get or don't get from the industry. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it just seemed like I'd hit the zenith of ridiculousness at that moment, standing in a men's room, pretending to conduct an orchestra while shows were fighting for awards. I mean, nothing about that is feels right to me. So I thought, maybe I'd do something else. Yeah. yeah. And how did teaching at the Manhattan School of Music begin for you? Well, it was pure luck. Um, uh, Louis Perez, who founded the new program there, um, had heard my name uh, from a couple people. And a former student of mine is on the board there. And a couple of people, they heard my name and they, they they thought that I probably wouldn't be interested in doing it because I was known for having a very um, heavy Broadway schedule, but I didn't have a heavy Broadway schedule at that time. And I thought, well, why not? I'll try this. Um, and I loved it. I just loved teaching. I couldn't be happier there. I, I teach a year long history of musical theater course that all the sophomores take. And, uh, each year teaching it, I learn more, and it's been a great experience for me. Yeah. And do, has your own Broadway career shaped the way you teach, do you think? or? Oh, completely. I, I, what, the only way I know how to teach this course is to get my students fired up with the things that fire up me. Yeah. You know, I teach the things I'm passionate about. 
I have them all read Act One by Moss Hart, you know, the best book about theater ever written, and other other books that I love and that inspired me, like Alan J. Lerner's The Street Where I Live, and Jack Fertel's book, The Secrets of the Broadway Musical. I love Ted Chapin's book, Everything Was Possible, which is was about his time as a Harvard student when he worked as an intern on Follies. Um, so all my students have to read those and they have to listen to my favorite musicals and we discuss why they're great and and that's that's the course. I try to get them passionate about the things that I'm passionate about. Yeah. And you're um, currently working on a Lyrics and Lyricists celebration of your book. And yes, the, the Y has been so generous to me and welcoming. Uh, sorry, what was your question? Well, I was first going to ask about, because I know that you also put together some lyrics and lyricists about other composers yes. before doing this. And what has that been like? Or what have those experiences Well, it's my favorite thing in the world to do. Uh, the Y shows that I've done, I've done five of them here over the last 11 years. And each one is a huge amount of work because I write the scripts, I, I narrate the show, and I do all the orchestrations and arrangements as well. Um, then I hire my favorite singers and a good director and we put it on in a week. But it's really about two years of preparation for each one. Um, they assigned me the topic of Burton Lane for the first one. I thought that sounded really boring until I started investigating Burton Lane. And in a couple of months I was convinced he was the best composer that had ever not been appreciated by Broadway and Hollywood. Uh, so that was a nice turnaround. And then I worked on the music of Vernon Duke, who is truly the one of the saddest cases of brilliant talent and total failure on Broadway. He wrote show after show after show after show, flop after flop after flop, kept going, kept going. He does have four hit songs, but nobody knows his name. And he actually had a second career completely different from his uh, sort of jazzy Broadway career as, Vern as Vladimir Dukelsky, which was his born Russian name, and that was his classical music. So there were, you'll often see references to Vladimir Dukelsky as being, very, as being a different person from Vernon Duke, and in, in fact, they were the same person. That was fun to put together, but nobody had ever heard of them. Uh, so I decided to do a popular show at the Y, and I, I came up with the Hal Prince Stephen Sondheim collaboration, which was a thrill for me to put together. We did songs from Company and Follies and Night Music, Pacific Overtures and Merrily and Sweeney Todd, and that was uh, that was one of the best things I've ever done. I put a, a Cole Porter show together, which was hilarious, and had the, the great late Rebecca Luker in that, and I did a, a Frank Lesser show as well. So these shows have been my passion. And to come back to the why, focusing on me seems A, presumptuous and B, delightful. And how have you put this show together based on the book or? Well, we had to figure that out. Um, I had done a couple of readings of, of chapters where I had a friend or two sing a song afterwards. Like I sang, I read the She Loves Me chapter and Liz Calloway sang, will he like me after it at one presentation? And that was, 
delightful to see the way the music interacts interacted with my writing. For this, I thought it was going to be simple like that, but it has gradually become much more complicated. We've had you know, we have these wonderful actors. Why not have them play some of the characters in the book? So we've really theatricalized the readings, and hopefully, the the whole thing will add up to a little more than just excerpts from 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 a memoir. Yeah, it's been very challenging to work on and very fun. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so you mentioned, of course, Sondheim, and I'd love to ask about a Sondheim show that you worked on that is not so much in the book, which is Company. Right. The Rival Company. Well, I love the score to company. It's, it's so, um, it's a complete show in itself, that score. It's like a, um, a what do they call it? A, a song cycle of songs of, of, of views on marriage, you know. Every song is in some way related to marriage. And you learn so much about the human race when you listen to company. You learn about adult relationships. You learn about people who say one thing and mean something else. You learn about ambiguity. You learn about, you know, holding two feelings completely antithetical to each other at the same time. I'm sorry, grateful, regretful, happy. That's the most profound adult song I think ever written. Yeah. Uh, I had done company at the Surflight Summer Theater actually. But to do it on Broadway at the Roundabout was so fun. Uh, we did it with Boyd Gaines as Bobby and Deborah Monk as Joanne. Vianne Cox was Amy, she was hilarious. And Lashans was uh, Marta singing uh, Another Hundred People, which is a song like no other song in the world. There's no other song like that. Charlotte Damboise, who had been at Surflight with me, uh, danced Kathy and that was just so exciting. And there was this magical day when Steve came and worked through the whole score with the whole company, giving the notes that he felt in response to their performance, but also describing what he was feeling when he wrote certain lyrics and how he loved this word to be pronounced and sort of gave us all the secrets of how to do company really well in one beautiful day. And I try to pass those notes on to actors whenever I work with them on those songs, you know, so, so to keep them alive. Yeah. And what was it like to collaborate with Sautam again, since you, of course, were in Merrily We Roll Along and then- He was so kind. He's always been so kind to me. I would have thought, you know, to have one of the Mer Merrily kids suddenly musical directing one of his revivals would have terrified him. <laughs> but he was thrilled. He was so, um, he, he was always such a nice supporter of mine. I worked um, on an off-Broadway revival of Pacific Overtures when I first moved back to New York. And he came and he saw one of the shows I conducted. I was the assistant. And he just couldn't have been nicer every time we've met. And then on Sondheim on Sondheim, we, we got to really bond again. And um, I just think the world of him in every way. He's a hero of mine who has never once disappointed me. Yeah. In his behavior, in his artistry, in his humanity. Uh, there's never been anyone like him. And 
another show of his that you worked on was the revival of Sweeney Todd. And so I'd love to ask um, what it's like to collaborate with John Doyle too. Well, John is wonderful. John is, John is unique. And John filters everything through his own sensibility in a way that makes his work so personal and so strange and exotic. And I, I love finding things that aren't, I love theater that isn't cookie cutters, stamped and shiny and commercial. And that's the opposite of John Doyle. John Doyle puts images from his troubled childhood on stage and, and leaves, the, leaves us to wonder what they mean in a really interesting way. Uh, I'm, I was such a fan of Hal Prince's original Sweeney Todd production that to work on it in a different way was A, really hard, and B, ultimately, really interesting to see how very different two productions could be of such a unique and perfect piece as Sweeney Todd. Um, and just technically, the stunt of having the actors accompany themselves was so difficult to pull oh, yeah. off. Required so much rehearsal, so much memorization, so much detailed decisions of, okay, I'm in charge of this bar. We all have to listen to this character breathe so we know when to play this note. It was so complicated that when they actually did it right, I just wanted to dance a Hosanna and you know, it didn't happen very often, but every now and then they would play it perfectly and I just felt like the king of the world. <laughs> and in your career as a music director, what are some of the biggest sort of mistakes you've seen on stage or how is that? Or as a conductor? Mistakes? Oh, well, mistakes happen all the time. You're constantly, you know, making up for a fallen prop or a, a ripped costume or a missing actor or... There was a production, there was a time when I was conducting the National Tour of Les Miserables when, um, well, you know, the whole thing happens on a turntable. And the turntable always goes in one direction in Les Mis. It never goes back the other way. So by the end of the show, it's all wound up in, in one direction and they have to unwind it before the next show starts. And in a performance at the Kennedy Center, the crew forgot to unwind the turntable. So for every entrance that the cast had to make onto the turntable, which they were used to going one way, and they'd have their weight set for that, the turntable would be going the other way and they would fall over, over and over. And then we, we, we barely got through the prologue, which is the first you know, 11 minutes of the show. And every actor had fallen on their ass and the props were rolling around the stage and, you know, the candlesticks were, you know, they'd fallen into the pit or something. It was just complete chaos because the turntable was going the wrong way. And finally they just called it. They said, they, the stage managers came on the system and explained to the audience that we would be starting again in about 20 minutes. Then they had to unwind the turntable. <laughs> fix all the actors who'd fallen on their ass, find the props that had been lost. It was, it's the, it was the most disastrous thing I ever saw. Wow. 
And so have you ever um, turned a show down as a musical director? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, whenever I'm off offered a disco show, I turn it down because I just have nothing to offer to, to a show like that. You know, I'm not a big rock talent. I don't have that, that gene. So I, I try to accept shows that I feel I will do well. And so I'd love to ask about a show that you worked on and it's um, one of its initial versions, although not on Broadway, which was The Secret Garden. Oh. <laughs> I call it The Garden of Evil. It's one of the only shows I was ever fired from. Oh. Um, I did it out of town at the Virginia Stage Company and the director who took over the show after that director was fired didn't want to use anybody from our production. So I was out of my ass and Vicki Clark was out on her ass. There were wonderful actors who were, uh, didn't continue with that show. And vocal arrangements of mine that I'd done for that production ended up in the Broadway show, which oh. I was not pleased about since I didn't receive any compensation for them. So I've never worked for those people again. And I never say the name of that show. I just call it the Garden of Evil. So in your um, close collaborations with Kander Neb and Stephen Sondheim and all these composers, was there ever a show that one of them either mentioned or did some sort of development on, but that never got to a stage? Huh. Well, Kander and Neb have a bunch of shows that never, never appeared. Uh, there's a show called Golden Gate that they wrote. Um, it has some very good songs that we just used actually in a workshop of New York, New York, a musical based on the, the, the movie of New York, New York, that we're putting together now. Um, Kendra and Em have, have a, a pretty large trunk of shows they thought about or started and, and, and abandoned, or um, specialty material that they've written for various actors. They wrote very quickly, there's lots of material. Sondheim, I don't think, has much... There aren't many dribs and drabs of Sondheim lurking around that people haven't pounced on already. He did not write quickly. Um, I think it took him everything he had to get out his magnificent songs. Um, every scrap, of course, has now been poured over by musicologists and PhD candidates. And so this might seem like kind of a simple question, but for those in the audience who might not know, how would you define what a musical director does? Well, a musical director is responsible for everything musical that happens in a musical. So I help cast the show. You know, I'm responsible for making sure that the cast can sing the show in the style that the show needs to be. You know, if we're looking for operatic voices or if we're looking for you know, pop rock belters, I've got, I'm the, the one who says that person is right for this show or that person is not right for this show. And then I teach the music, which to me is one of the most powerful things that I do because I, the way I teach a score affects the way the actors perform it for potentially for years. You know, if it's a long running experience. Uh, then I work with the director on how music will function in the show. Is there going to be underscoring after this? song? Are we going to do the scene dry? How do we make the transition from dialogue to song in this next piece? You know, do we sneak the 
underscoring in, or do we come blaring in, announcing that, that a song is coming? There are all sorts of different ways that music can exist in a show, and it's my job to to sort those out with the the director and the choreographer. Um, I usually work as a vocal arranger on the shows I do, which means I'll decide what the chorus is singing or how different melodies will work if they if they go on top of each other. Um, I work with the choreographer, with the dance arranger, making sure that the dance music is doing exactly what it needs to do to help to tell the, the story that we're telling. The music director is the great collaborator. He collaborates with he or she collaborates with every single department, even the set designers. You know, when, when is that set going to come into place? Is it going to be on the little ding at the end of the music? That makes it look better. Um, with the costume designers, you know, um, we'll sometimes time how long a costume change will take, and then write music so that it'll cover exactly that amount of time. So that we know that the person can make the costume change every night. You know, if you play the music at the right tempo. <laughs> You're really collaborating with everybody. And then, once the show is running, you are both a performer and part of the creative team. Yeah. You're part of the event each night, but you're the part with the responsibility to, to maintain it and keep it fresh and keep it right and maintain the composer's vision. It's a huge job. You're constantly um, in many, many different worlds responsible for important things. And then when a show is running, you're running understudy rehearsals, you're casting replacements, you're maintaining the show, giving notes, making sure everything is kept clean and fresh. And the, the year that I took off from music directing to act in the play Masterclass with so-called well, was such a vacation from all of that responsibility. You know, in Masterclass, I was just responsible for my part of this play, which was so fascinating to me, and that's all I had to do. It was great. I loved it. And I'd actually, I'd love to ask you a bit about Zoe Caldwell, because that's one of the most sort of vivid parts of your memoir, I think, is oh, that Thanks. I loved writing that chapter because Zoe was extraordinary. And not the kind of, that kind of, you know, raw from the, from the streets of Australia into a classical actress at the RSC and, and I mean, that kind of life isn't the normal kind of musical theater life that most of the actors that I work with in musical theater have which are a little bit more polished and protected. And Zoe is a woman who had lived and um, knows everything there, there is to know about theater because she grew up in it and she has acted with the greatest Shakespearean actors on the planet. She's directed every Shakespeare show there ever was. Um, that was thrilling for me because I, I love theater and I love actors and to meet and fall in love with, really, this extraordinary woman and watch her struggle and fail and want to quit and then triumph in the role was so exciting. I loved her. I just loved every bit of being with her and her beautiful husband, Robert Whitehead. 
They don't make them like that anymore. And then um, I know uh, you worked, um, Marilyn, we were along with Lonnie Price, who you then also worked a lot with on a class act. Right. And so what has your collaboration been like with him? Oh, well, Lonnie is just one of the most delightful people on, the, on earth. And any chance to work with him is, is a treat for me. Um, yeah, I was his understudy in Marilyn and thankfully never had to go on. But he was always so nice to me. It's just the such a giving from the friendly guy and then it was a long time after that that we worked on the class act and a class act was his baby i mean he wrote that show and was starring in it i came in later in the process i conducted only the broadway run i didn't do the off-broadway run but it was, it was great to, to see him again he's a, you know he's an old friend and that merrily cast was bonded tighter than any other company I've ever been a part of. We are each other's brothers and sisters, and we have each other's backs for life, and we've been through hell and heaven together, and we all live to tell the tale. Yeah. And what was it like to do that famous um, Merrily reunion concert that happened? Well, you know, it was the first time we ever did the show and people liked it. <laughs> it was thrilling. It was thrilling. It was, um, it was really fun to do the show that we, we all loved it. We knew it was great when we did it. The audience hated it so much. It was so depressing to play that show and have people not enjoy it. And I never understood it. I, those songs are fantastic. Um, but to do it, I think it was 21 years later, and have the audience go insane. And rightfully so. It's not like they were just clapping for us because we were there. We did the play and it worked. Yeah. We never had that experience before. And then to go back um, briefly to a class act, um, what do you think is the greatness of Ed Kleban's music? That, well, Ed Kleban was the lyricist, <clears throat> not, not a musician. His lyrics for a chorus line are perfection. It's sort of a mystery because none of his other work had the success that a chorus line had, but a chorus line is one of the best things ever written. I mean, those lyrics are so economical in the way they paint portraits of those dancers. It's just little phrases like, the image of a woman digging earrings out of a car up a steep and very narrow stairway to a voice like a metronome. Those, those lyrics are so evocative of um, specific imagery and um, sort of indelible um, character details that really accomplish the impossible goal of that show, which is that we know each of those dancers completely by the end of the show. I think A Chorus Line is a brilliant piece of work because it accomplishes that and then it erases it by putting them all in the same costume, all of them putting their legs up to the same height. And after this evening of seeing, of learning 27 individuals, all of a sudden you can't tell who they are. They're just a machine, they're just a chorus line at the end. 
And it breaks your heart, in a way, to see the snazzy gold ending that is so satisfying. But you can't see the people anymore. And so then I'd love to talk about just a few more shows. And um, one of those is The Look of Love, which you conceived and also musical directed. Um, yeah, that was a disappointment. Oh. We did, I mean, the music of Burt Bacharach is, is great. And we did some workshops of this piece and it looked like it was going pretty well. I did a lot of arranging on it. I had great singers, Katia Jenkins, um, Liz Calloway, Jonathan DeCuchitz, and some really good people. And it just didn't seem theatrical. It never became theatrical. I think it would make a great album. That, that score would be delightful to listen to on an album, and you can imagine it any way you want, but it didn't work in the theater. Despite Scott Ellison and Ron King and you know, great people working on it. And I would love to ask about the, um, the late great Anne Ron King and what she was like in the Annie was so great. She was the nicest person you'd ever met. And she, she was, she was the survivor of a very different kind of theater where choreographers were cruel to actors and felt that they needed to tear them down before they could build them up. And Annie brought a lot of that with her, but in a way that was different. She had very high standards. She, I've, I saw her yell at her dancers in a way that I would never be able to yell at a person in the theater. But it was interesting because she was able to do it with love. And I don't think that that was always the case in her career as a dancer. Um, I am not a dancer and I will never understand what, how they do what they do. But I think musical theater dancers are extraordinary. And Annie was one of the greatest. When she was on stage, you could not physically look anywhere else but at her. <laughs> and if she wanted you to look at her left finger while she flicked it, you looked at her left finger. And if she wanted you to look at her toe, you looked at her toe. She, it was like her body had magnets that your eyes were connected to. So I'd love to just uh, close by asking about two plays you worked on on Broadway as the writer, the incidental music, which were Death of a Salesman and The Crucible. Well, the Death of a Salesman um, was such an interesting project. I got to work with Mike Nichols, so I never thought I would get to work with. And his concept for that production was that he used the original set design. People never do that when they do revivals. You know, they, they have to put their own imprint on it. But I guess if you're Mike Nichols, you don't have to put your own imprint on it because you're not that insecure because you're Mike Nichols. Um, so he was using the original set design, and I assume costume design, and so he decided to use the original music that had been a part of the original production. And they actually had live players for that original production of Death of the Salesman because some of the playhouses at that time had minimums. Even if there was no music, you had to pay three musicians you know, for the run of the show. So 
rather than have the musicians sit there playing canasta. <laughs> for Death of a Salesman, they wrote a score and they had to play it every night. Um, and it was a good score. So we recorded it and used it for that production. I, I thought it was beautiful. And, I, and I, the day that we recorded all the music, Mike Nichols was in the studio and he told great stories and he was so nice to the musicians. He's just a great man. Yeah. There's a great new book out about him too. Yes, yes, I read that. And then the other one I'd love to talk about is, is The Crucible. The Crucible, uh, John Kander wrote a score. I think it was mostly for bass. A very complicated bass part that we recorded. Um, it, was, it was not a score that you would, you would listen to and think, oh, that sounds like John Kander. <laughs> it was not a, a bunch of snappy vamps. Yeah. Uh, but it was a very effective score. It was kind of scary. Yeah. And it, it is, of course, a terrifying play. And then the um, the very last question I'd love to ask you is, with such a legendary career in the theater, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? No, oh, this is a hard one. Because part of me always wants to say, run, run for your life. It's a hard business. And, and if you don't have to do it, please don't. Which is the advice that I always got. You know, if you can do anything else, do that. Yeah. But I can't do anything else with the same passion that I can do this. And if you, if you have that same passion, then God damn it, come join us, you know, in the madhouse. Um, but you better be pretty committed to that dream because disappointment and struggle and Heartbreak and poverty are going to come your way. And other things too, but those are guaranteed. That doesn't stop anybody from coming to the theater. You know, I could give that speech a hundred times. Nobody's going to turn around because they love it so much. And I loved it so much as a kid. And I, I wasn't going to turn around. You know, I had my eyes on the prize and I went for it. And I was very, very lucky. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been... Thank you. It's you're, you're a treat to talk to, and I'm so glad that you read the whole book. It's amazing. Oh, oh yes, yes, it was wonderful. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I'm joined by cabaret singer and Broadway star Karen Mason. On Broadway, Karen has starred in Play Me a Country Song, Jerome Robbins' Broadway, Sunset Boulevard as the original understudy to Glenn Close, Wonderland, Torch Song Trilogy, Mamma Mia, and Hairspray, as well as originating a role in the infamous Rebecca. Karen is also a legendary performer in the world of cabaret, having headlined at Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center, Feinstein's at the Regency, Rainbow and Stars, and more. And on Monday the 28th, you can see her starring in Candor and Ebb and All That Jazz at Birdland. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening. <laughs>